0: Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week on the show, we're going to travel over to the Pacific. We're going to be speaking with an expert in foods of the Pacific who specifically looks at the chemistry of our foods. Our guest today is Dr. Vincent Lal. He's manager of analytical services at the University of the South Pacific. Institute of Applied Sciences. He received his PhD from the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. Vincent's research focuses on human health risk assessments. He is part of Oceana Foods, which is working on updating the Pacific Islands food composition tables. His research interests also include access and benefit sharing, contaminants, and antimicrobial resistance. Vincent works closely with the governments in uh, Pacific Island countries, as well as with regional agencies like the Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat and Pacific Community. He also works with UN agencies like the World Health Organization, the Food and Ag Organization and the United Nations Development Program on the development of monitoring strategies for the protection of human and environmental health in Pacific Island countries. Vincent, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming.
1: Yeah, Bula, and uh, thank you for having me.
0: That's great. I love Bula. So tell me, is Bula hello? What does Bula mean?
1: Bula is a literal translation into life. So we wish you life. So you wish me
0: life. Okay. (laughs) I like that.
1: (laughs) So the Bula word is used in many contexts. So it can be for hello. It can be for good morning. It can be for how are you doing? (laughs) So it it all depends on the context in which you use it. But good morning is also Bula and hi is also Bula.
0: (laughs) Bula. Fantastic. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show. I know you're dialing in from the other side of the world over in beautiful Fiji where you're studying these foods of Fiji and other Pacific Islands. I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit about this project on the Pacific Islands food composition table? Like what is the project all about and what are you contributing to it from a scientific perspective?
1: Yes, Pacific Islands food composition tables is a collection of Pacific Island foods from 12 different Pacific Island countries. And this is a very remote part of the world with its own unique biodiversity and its own different foods. And what the food composition tables does is look into the dietary consumption patterns of the people of the Pacific. And this is a FAO-supported initiative through the InFoods program. And we have around 900 different Pacific Island foods for which we have food composition data that can be used by nutritionists uh, for designing uh, dietary plans. It can be used by industry to make uh, different kinds of foods. And also it is useful for people who love to have Pacific Island food on their plates. So it's a very important book and it's a very important program, I think, uh, that brings out the best from the Pacific Islands.
0: It's amazing. Well, what can you share with us about, like, what is, this, what is the Pacific Island diet look like? And maybe this differs from cu- country to country or from culture to culture. Can we start with Fiji? Like, what's a traditional Fijian diet like?
1: That's a very interesting question. Actually, the traditional Fijian diet is very close to the ocean The and also to the forest foods. And one of the key examples of that would be what we call lobo. And lobo is a food that is collected from the sea. You can have sea, seaweeds, you can have different kinds of fish, shellfish, and there's also ferns from the bush. And they utilize native plants. Many of them would be normally present around your homes or close to the village. And you would cook it in coconut milk. And sometimes you would probably cook it in the ground. So you bake it in a way. So that would be a typical Fijian food, but there is a concern. And that's why we are doing so much work now to understand how these dietary patterns have been changing over time and how it's affecting Pacific Island communities.
0: And so when we talk about change, I I think change comes to food systems in many ways. In some ways, it can be changed due to economic transitions towards a more westernized diet, but there are also changes happening because of climate change. So how are these two factors affecting the food systems there?
1: The local food systems is under threat and has been for a long time. One is obviously due to the improvement in supply chains. And there's a lot of imported food that now becomes part of the, not only the Fijian diet, but a Pacific Islander diet. For example, noodles, in a way, becomes a breakfast food, in a way. <laughs> so it's, uh, we, we call it a noodle pandemic in a way. So there's a lot of noodles being consumed in the region now, much more than probably would be normal for any community. (laughs) Is this like uh, ramen
0: noodles or like pasta? Like what type of noodles are are we talking about? Like pasta, like spaghetti or ramen or...
1: No, this is just normal packet noodles. (laughs) So that would be like an instant noodle or something. Yeah. 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 So obviously there's a concern about the high intake of salt from such foods. So there is a huge initiative and concern from many governments in the Pacific and development partners who assist Pacific Island countries in the region, that the dietary patterns could spell disaster for a beautiful part of the world in terms of health issues that may arise in in the region. I think one of the things that's quite important is to also understand the impact of climate change that compounds the effect. And climate change is a reality in this part of the world. Not only climate change affects island communities, coastal communities with sea level rise, but the temperature rise in the sea also affects the biodiversity in the reef, which then affects the people who depend on the reef for food supply. So there is quite an intricate connection between the biodiversity in the region, the climate change, and also people. So this is quite an important uh, part of the world that could be studied as a model, I think, to see how we can protect communities from the effect of climate change and also through dietary choices, I think. One of the things I would like to highlight though, in a way, is when COVID hit the region, there was a breakdown in the food supply, so people went back to the local food systems. And I think during the, that particular two years, a lot of people actually ate healthy Pacific Island foods, which were close by. So in a way, the pandemic uh, made us realize, I think as communities, uh, that we have our own local foods that we should really look into and uh, focus on as well.
0: Now that's such a good point. I think this is a challenge for many island nations is this dependence upon western exp- imported foods that are often really bad for the health of the local population so having that capacity to turn back to local foods that do have some health benefits i think is really exciting when you think about some of the major plant-based foods that are consumed in the pacific islands a few things come to mind off of the top of my head but i don't know if these are as important as I might be imagining them to be. Well, I'm thinking immediately of, of crops like taro and crops like breadfruit as major starch sources. Is this still an important part of the Pacific Island diet or are there other crops that you find are more traditional?
1: You're right, actually. So taro and cassava, yams, uh, breadfruit, these are the Staple diets, the foods that are Pacific, very Pacific, Uh, but there is also quite a lot of change now with, uh, as I mentioned, noodles and rice, uh, that is becoming a major part of the diet in the Pacific Island uh, communities. One of the other, I think, interesting points would be the banana and the plantain that was also very important part of the diet. So. I think sometime back i heard somewhere that one of the bananas from the pacific island country was called a superfood in a way and one of the reasons was the high folate content and that was actually what a lot of expecting mothers would have just used before rather than taking some extra tablets for folate so food is also medicine that was part of the diet here but there's a lot of that knowledge that is being forgotten and one of the work, and some of the work that we are trying to do with the PTFI initiative, as well as the Pacific Island Food Revolution work with uh, Chef Robert Oliver, is that we're trying to reconnect and reignite that that initiative in people to go back to their original foods, understand the food better, and know that you have very good food close to you, and you can use them to improve the health of the community.
0: That's great. I want to talk a bit more about the Periodic Table of Food Initiative in the South Pacific. Can you give us a little bit of background on what the project aims to do and and what's your role in supporting this work?
1: Yeah, the Periodic Table of the Food Initiative is a global initiative. As it says that they are all for unlocking the food composition data for human and planetary health. So we were taken with that uh, theme and naturally our work aligned to what the PTFI was doing globally. The three things that they're focusing on are creating tools, having the right kind of data and training people. And this is all the three things that we also need in a developing country uh, like Fiji and in this region. So people really do not understand the issue better. Once they understand, I think. Once that education is infiltrated into the communities, that knowledge is created, I think there will be change. And we're starting with the youths, with the students. So we're having a food revolution in the universities. We're trying to create dishes with uh, influential uh, chefs like Robert Oliver. And uh, we're building a laboratory infrastructure to strengthen our testing capacity, to generate data, and make it available to communities so that they are more empowered in a way to understand what foods are in the region, where they are, how to access it, and what is important in that food, and why is it important to conserve it. There's a growing trend of, in agriculture in Pacific Island countries, and because these are very small islands, there's not much land on which you can actually do agricultural work. There's a lot of uh, for monoculturing. So this is the message we're trying to bring out to the communities that you have. You can work with regenerative agriculture rather than cutting down your tropical forests and planting a crop that may not actually stabilize the soil in the island communities. So there's a lot that can be, I think, done under the PTFI initiative. And we're picking up on the things first around food, but there are other messages, I think, around soil health, also around community health that the global initiative, I think, is assisting us with at the moment.
0: It's amazing. So your background, Vincent, is in analytical chemistry. And when we think of, when I think of chemistry and biology, maybe the general public doesn't always recognize how food is medicine because it really has to do with the plant chemistry, right? That's what makes the food medicinal, as you mentioned, with folate levels in certain um, types of bananas. Can you share a little bit of the science behind how you use the tools of chemistry to understand the makeup of our foods, like the health values or potential health values of our foods?
1: Yeah, that is a very good question, actually. And the way I will start is that one of the reasons food is called medicine is because it has a lot of different useful compounds in it. And the only limitation is that we do not know what is in there. We just know a little bit. The periodic table of the food initiative is bringing out and unlocking that data for different foods all around the world. So one of the things that is beneficial in my mind as a chemist is how do you get access to the, the compounds, the, the good stuff in food? And we start, I would, from my own background, in terms of mixture chemistry, that is a little bit of work that I did on what is bioavailable. So basically, we need to understand which compounds can be unlocked in our, using our biology, by understanding our own biology. Foods in different combinations can unlock the biomolecules and promote absorption of those good foods into our bodies and help us heal. So I think one of the most important aspects of chemistry in this is that once we know what's in the food, then we can actually know how to get access to it. And maybe one day a doctor will prescribe a list of food as medicine. So that would be great, yeah. rather than going into it. Yeah.
0: I love that idea. Yeah, today I was teaching a class in medical botany, and we were making our own tea blends. And before we made our tea blends, we broke down what do we what we know, and there's still a lot that we don't know about different the chemistry of different herbal tea ingredients. And so it helps I think our students understand. Oh well, this is why this particular ingredient or this combination of ingredients helps soothe the stomach because it has these molecules that have these pharmacological properties. And I just think it's very exciting that what we'll be able to open up and understand about the diet and how to optimize our own health through this knowledge. So that's really great. Yeah. Yeah. Now I know you're also involved in this other program that's connected to, to the PTFI and that is the food EDU initiative. What can you tell us about the Food EDU initiative and um, how this is going to help support capacity building?
1: Yes, the Food EDU initiative is also part of the PTFI in a way, and it's funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. We received this opportunity to train Pacific Islanders, uh, our students, and the exciting part is that we bring the tools to them here in Fiji and we connect to the experts all around the world. So the Food EDU makes it possible to develop capacity in Pacific Island countries to understand food, to, to use the laboratories, to upgrade the laboratories that are here. And also within the network of the periodic table of the food initiative, the global network, to learn from each other. There's a lot of learning from different regions as well. So there is a network in which you learn on how do I do this work? How do I actually go to the next step of analyzing this food or understanding the chemistry of it? So that is something that is very difficult when you are in such a remote location of the world. So the Possibility of being connected is so important, I think. That itself was the most important part of this program, that we are now connected to the global community. And we have an opportunity here to contribute to the knowledge building. And I think that is the very noble part of what PTFI is doing.
0: That's great. That's great. And so we've we've spoken a lot about Fiji, but I know that you also work in other Pacific Island nations. What can you tell us about your work in other parts of the region?
1: This is a very interesting part of the world. (laughs) The region is basically divided into three, three sectors. So we have Melanesia, Polynesia, and Micronesia. So Fiji and many other Pacific Island countries fall under Melanesia, Western Pacific mostly. And these are countries like Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu. And there's a huge biodiversity in many of these island countries. And unique, very unique, the kinds of food that have been consumed, the very traditional foods that are existing. What we'd like to do is to build a list, a shopping list in a way, to go out and see what are you having for breakfast? in Vanuatu or what are you having for breakfast in Solomon Islands or in Samoa we have an idea but we'd like to really validate those findings scientifically under the PTFI initiative using the PTFI platforms and then we bring out the good stuff in that cereal that breakfast bowl from Vanuatu or the breakfast bowl from Solomon Islands and that data would be available in open access to everyone. So if anybody in Los Angeles wants to have a Solomon Islands-style breakfast, they can, because it is available, that information is there. Uh, And there could be so much more to design that breakfast or whatever is in that uh, food. Uh, I think uh, the compounds, the good stuff can be known. There's a lot of, I think, uh, during COVID, There's a lot of communities that went out and used plants to build immunity. And these were part of traditional knowledge. We observed that why are people going out to the forest and getting this plant, different kinds of plants and making a concoction of of something uh, and having that. And we found out that that was a way to build immunity and to survive the COVID in that way. So there's a lot here that is not known, I think. There's a lot of different foods that I think will be quite interesting to bring out and we're working with both students and I think chefs, as well as in the PDFI, how to bring the ingredients together and create a recipe and bring it out to, I think, to the lab and get it tested. So it's it's quite an interesting undertaking, I think.
0: That's incredible. Yeah. I'm curious, what are traditional breakfasts around the world? Hopefully not all instant noodles, but yeah, the health values of those of how you start your day and it differs so much between cultures. Some of the foods that I've, I've never had the opportunity to travel to Melanesia, but one of the, the foods that I've long been fascinated with is the traditional preparation of breadfruit. And I'm wondering in your study of these. Breadfruit, I've heard, can also be buried as a kind of way to preserve it and ferment it underground. So you have a resilient food source. If a storm comes through and wipes out your crops, you still have the food like underground that's saved. Uh, Is this something that you're also interested in looking at or traditional food preservation methods? Yeah. And are there any other foods like that that are good for resilience in the face of climatic
1: events? Yes yeah that's a, that's a very good example actually of how communities survived natural disasters in the past so breadfruit is abundant in the region and uh, one of the ways uh, uh, it has been used as a food security for food security is to get it buried and the fermented food uh, breadfruit is then used whenever there is a need And during COVID, actually, a lot of communities dependent on it. So I think breadfruit definitely is one of those foods that is in our list. And we'll be working on especially fermented foods of the South Pacific. There's a lot of different categories of foods also, like the nuts of the South Pacific. Then there is also the fermented foods of the South Pacific the leafy vegetables of the South Pacific, the fruits of the South Pacific. So these are different categories under which we validate the food item and then we uh, analyze them to see what's in them.
2: I think if I can talk about another food would be coconut, fermented coconut. Fermented coconut is used in many of the islands where there is a lack of fresh water. Instead of drinking water that may not, that may have a high salt content, they would, people normally ferment coconut to a certain extent, and then it is consumed like water rather than having water because there is lack of access to fresh water. So these are some of the things that, that show resilience in people, I think. And also that these are some of the knowledge that exists in the region with regards to even climatic conditions that have put these communities under pressure in the past as well. Climate change is going to not, I think, become a very major issue in the region. And bringing that knowledge out into the open, having discussions around how the communities managed food, how survived these events. And I think what nutrition was obtained from consuming such foods is so important. And that leads to my next topic, I think, which is in a way access and benefit sharing, because some of the communities very closely safeguard some of the secrets in a way.
0: Yeah, so what is access and benefit sharing? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and and how that fits in the Nagoya protocol. What does that mean for someone to come in and like you said, ask about what may be considered secretive knowledge and then digging deep into the chemistry of those plants as well. How does all that come into play with ethics?
2: Yeah, access and benefit sharing is a uh, very broad approach, I think, uh, in which there's uh, many international instruments, one of which is the Nagoya Protocol. And uh, we're actually having some discussions around it as we speak. Uh, So access and benefit sharing in the Pacific context is uh, wrapped all around traditional traditional protocols, Uh, the Pacific is where people really engage in, in a communal way. So a lot is learned as a community and a lot is shared in a community context. I think with regards to access and benefit sharing, for example, if you would like to get access to a certain kind of food uh, item in the forest, uh, which is difficult to obtain otherwise, and the knowledge on how to use that food as an ingredient in a recipe. The concern is that a lot of these foods, because they are uh, not utilized as much as they used to be, are disappearing. And by ensuring that people have an understanding about the importance of such foods and providing them some benefits of conser- conserving these foods and for communities to utilize the food readily. That would actually then bring out the message to communities that you get some benefit out of the excess that you provide to other people using that food for research papers or commercial. But I think it's a bit tricky in a way the negotiations that are done under access and benefit sharing to establish what are the benefits, who is the beneficiary, and how do you define the benefits? Because many of the access and benefit frameworks do not exist in the region. So this is something very new, I think, but I think it is quite important because the region is rich in natural resources, especially Blue Foods, I think. So. That could be quite an important aspect of how the region as a whole, Steving Island communities, understand the natural resource that is abundant in the sea and how they can be shared to the rest of the world, I think. So access and benefit sharing will provide an avenue, I think, for that to happen.
0: That's a really, that's a really great point of ensuring that there's understanding of, of the whole process of access and benefit sharing. You mentioned some of these foods that perhaps might be underutilized currently. So can you give us some examples of the types of foods that are perhaps underutilized, these indigenous foods that have this rich cultural heritage but perhaps are not have not made it into a larger use in, in, in larger food systems yet?
2: Yeah, one example that comes to my mind is kava. Kava is really uh, very closely bound to the fabric of the community in the Pacific. And it's very traditional, very cultural significance. Kava comes from a plant, and the part of the plant that is actually consumed is the root and also the rhizome. What it does is it gives you a bit of a, uh, I don't know if I should say, uh, a little bit of a high. Uh, but I like uh,
0: to call it body high because your uh, head is still here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
2: yeah. It's, it's, it's used uh, to calm people down. It is an anti-anxiety in a way. And for that very reason and many life-changing testimonials for people who have uh, consumed karma, who are really going through the effects of anxiety. So kava has helped a lot of people globally now, and as an underutilized food, I think it has a lot of potential. Now we're working very closely on the different cultivars of kava that are found in the Pacific Islands, what are the different compounds of interest, the active compounds that bring the effect of anti-anxiety, and I think that itself could provide relief to a lot of stressed people around the world. A plant from the Pacific Islands.
0: Absolutely, I first learned about kava from some colleagues that lived and worked in Hawaii, and they shared it. And it's a delightful plant. For the listeners out there that aren't familiar with it, this is a relative of black pepper. The species is Piper and the active molecules are these compounds called kavalactones. You find in kind of this when you prepare it from a dried powder, it almost looks like a, a muddy water. <laughs> Because in the U.S., we can get the dried powder. I know in Fiji, I'm sure you can get the fresh root, which is even more special to have the freshly prepared. But it is, it tastes a bit like a peppery water. But for me, at least, it helps with anxiety and also with kind of muscle pains. It makes my body feel quite relaxed and helps with sleep. I think you're right. It's a tremendous plant with a lot of potential to help people.
2: Yeah. yeah, we call it Brown Label here in the Pacific. <laughs> yeah, uh, traditionally, the roots of the plant were chewed by virgins in a way. And that was the sputum was used to mix. The extract would unlock a lot of the active compounds. And this was quite, this is quite a significant traditional practice of how carbo was consumed from the green roots, I think, because there is an enzymatic process of unlocking the sugars, it acts on the sugars and then the compounds that are lobbed in the sugars are released. So this is also quite an interesting practice that actually exists in the region. And uh, the
0: chewy, Chewing it and spitting it is what you're saying? No.
2: That's, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
0: okay. okay. So it's like letting the salivary amylase kind the- of break down the sugars. They do something similar with with manioc in the Amazon, I don't know if that's also a practice in, in the Pacific, but in the Amazon with manioc or cassava, they'll boil it and then it's chewed and spit into a barrel and maybe some sugar cane juice added so it kickstarts the fermentation of the sugars in the manioc. It's a beverage called masato, an alcoholic beverage. So different from yeah, with kaba, but interesting. So do they leave this to ferment after it's been chewed or is it consumed very quickly after being chewed and mixed?
2: I think the one that we are familiar with is consumed quite quickly after it's chewed.
0: Yeah, so it doesn't ferment necessarily. Yeah, good. Okay.
2: Yeah, but I have heard of accounts where there are fermented kava drinks and smell, that would be quite an interesting one to also study.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. It's an incredible plant, I think there's a lot a lot of really fascinating plants in the Pacific that make me really want to travel there <laughs> and of course, for the food that <laughs> we it's just a incredible rich history of these species. That's great, great. that's it looking forward as you progress in this work towards developing these tables of Pacific Islander foods and through your work in leading chemistry, these chemical analysis. What is your hope for this program? Where do you hope that things will go with this work?
2: Yeah, I think uh, one of the most important work we are doing is getting access to tools that would help us uh, generate very important data for the Pacific Island foods. And in the process, we are building people. We are creating the next we are having the next generation of scientists from our islands we are empowering them in a way under this program to to take up such work and contribute to the well-being of pacific island communities so this is i think my my aim is that more of our our regional scientists are empowered And there are more tools available for us to explore what's around us. And especially with regards to food, what is so special about the foods that we have close to us.
0: I'm really excited about this project. And I think that it's incredible, like the difference that you can make in research capacity building, like you are saying, training the next generation. And in the meantime, also learning a lot of important science about these foods and this diet. That's great. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Vincent. It was really nice to speak with you.
2: It was a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the Food Curious, recorded for you today on on Squadcast. I want to give a big shout out of thanks to our producers, to Rob Kille and Christine Roth for bringing you a great show each and every week. And I also want to remind you, we've got this episode and many others, plus lots of great resources for um, swag. You can also buy me a coffee. I could use an extra bit of caffeine each day. You can do all that at our website at foodiepharmacology.com. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time. This foodie pharmacology podcast is part of a special series co-designed with the periodic table of food initiative, also known as the PTFI. The views and opinions in this podcast are those of the presenters and represent the synthesis of science. The PTFI is a program of RF Catalytic Capital managed by a collaborative team at the American Heart Association and the Alliance of Bioversity, CIAT, that seeks to advance our fundamental understanding of food composition by providing tools, data, and training to scientists across the globe so they can better characterize the quality of the world's edible biodiversity. The PTFIs ultimate goal is to advance data-driven solutions in the food sector for the health of people and the planet. Funding for the PTFI is provided by the Rockefeller Foundation, the Foundation for Food and Agricultural Research, C. RAVE Foundation, Fourfold Foundation, and Atria Health Collaborative.